following presentation was recorded live by the Jewish Ethics Institute. Kavanaugh was the subject, but not only talking about Kavanaugh, we're talking with generalities here. So I don't want to get too political. I know it's very emotional for some of you. I don't want anyone to start uh, getting start emotional on me. It's not an emotional subject. So, so we we are. I mean, we're talking in general. Generally, we could address Kavanaugh too, but it's it's, it's very relevant, not just Kavanaugh to political appointments. I don't know if you saw someone, uh, one of the candidates that won this week. One of the candidates that won was actually he's in jail. He ran while he was in jail. Did you hear about this? And the other one's dead, right? The other guy. There's another guy who's dead, but one guy ran while he was in jail. So, so there's a lot of uh, interesting things going on in the country currently. Um, you run while you're in jail, can you, like for governor, can you like pardon yourself once you get elected? Wasn't governor, it wasn't governor. I don't know what it was. You can't vote, but you can run. You're a felon, you can run. So you can't pardon yourself once you get elected. Thank you. If you're on death row and you win or something? No, because governors can pardon for certain things. He wasn't running for governor, I don't know what it can, but... So the point is, it's not only relevant for candidates, but this is something as a rabbi that comes up when you have a shul interviewing rabbis. Sometimes um, this has happened. We're not going to get personal, not necessarily in Houston, but you know, you have, you're have you interviewing uh, even for a rabbinical position, and then someone comes along and says, well, 30 years ago the guy did this to me, or he you know, did something inappropriate. So how does that work? Meaning the, the question, there's a few um, issues just to break it down. One is we're going to discuss the general concept of what, again, we're looking at from the Torah's point of view, from the halachic point of view. It's not necessarily relevant practically in uh, in our country because our country doesn't use the Torah as their standard. But, but we're, again, we're coming at it from the from the Torah's perspective. What is considered? What's the evidentiary standards um, according to the Torah, according to Allah, according to Jewish law? And um, more than that, the question besides actual evidence, because that was part of the debate here. Um, was, was do we need evidence? Meaning if someone, again, if you're appointing a leader, whether it be a political leader, a judge, or a, or a rabbi, just to pick on rabbis, the question becomes, it's not only about evidence, because there's an issue, you want a rabbi, even if there's no hard evidence saying this guy did something, but if someone is accusing him of wrongdoing in the past, and it might even be only a rumor, but is this the person you want as your leader, where there might not be, again, hard evidence, but just on rumors alone, can you not appoint someone or can you remove someone from their current appointment? So it means even if, if uh, there's it's really two different questions because obviously there will be different levels of, of what we'll accept um, if someone is already in a position to remove them from that position or if someone, now it's a question of just appointing. So again, it's not just Kavanaugh, it's not just the Supreme Court, it's, it's very relevant in many different positions, political positions and clergy positions where people many times during the process will come forth and say this guy did something to me in the past or uh, whatever the case is so, and, and there is no hard evidence so how do we deal with it how should we deal with it okay feel free to speak if you like between two just question yes. if Kavanaugh was found to be like oh he did commit, commit such and such felony and he's still liable to be charged is that grounds to be? Oh, so that's a different court? question. So now there's here's a question. Let's say we do we know the guy did something wrong, but he repented for his past actions. He was in jail 30 years ago. No longer is, oh, and there were many candidates running now, not for the Supreme Court in the, in the past election, who 
have had past stories, but they claim they changed their views or you know, whatever it is. They supported Farrakhan, whatever they did in the past, in their past life. Now they're saying we have, I repented on that action. I no longer agree. Ooh, yes. Look at that. Can you see it? Can you see that? Uh, yeah. Okay, we see that's me. Of course. So, um, so again, the, the question becomes, um, so, the, so David, that's a very good point. And I, and I will talk about it, hopefully, if we have enough time. The question is, can someone repent on their past actions? And does that necessarily disqualify them because of their past actions? Okay, so that's another important question. Especially when their past action was 20 years ago. Yeah, well, it was well, well, it's also, right, yes. That's another hundred years ago. And another question yeah. we all discussed, a very a good there. point. Um, another question is, let's say they did something when they were a minor, in high school or in a case like that where they're, now they're adults, so do we even view, do we care what they did as a minor when they're now in a different, uh, different stage in life, and as an adult stage, yes. But Jewish law minor is different than the law, so 13, yes. you'd be bar mitzvah, not bar mitzvah, not our case, yes. but... Yeah, but again, there is a, so in, in our society there also is a definition of a minor. Minor would be under the age of 18, let's say, so the same question. If someone did something under the age of 18, do we hold them liable when they become an adult at a later stage? It depends on the crime they did. It depends on the position of the crime they did. You know what? You see here. He's eating. He's eating. Have a plate? Everything's kosher. She's afraid of him. Okay. Okay, so so that's the questions on the table. So let's begin. Ready? that's yeah but I'm saying many times as we know people are ignorant and they don't know they might not even know where the guy's hiding his past that's another question am I obligated to even oh. disclose that I sat in jail 30 years ago for tax evasion? Um, you know, do I have to disclose that? I'm running for office. 30 years ago I was in jail for tax evasion. Do I have to disclose that when I'm running or not? When people, most people are not going to check the records. They don't know. They check your records. No, it depends. I mean, yes. depends which party. Depends, uh, depends which party. Yes. Depends which state um, you're running in. But so I'm saying most people are not going to know. So am I obligated to disclose that? I'm, I'm interviewing for rabbi position. Okay. Um, now do I have to interview that? I, do I have to disclose to them that I sat in jail? You know, 20 years ago for tax evasion. Not that I did. Oh, right. I'm not getting sure. personal. Are you, are, you are, you are you saying legally? Are you saying legally or in Jewish law? Jewish law. Legally, no, no, you don't legally, have to. For sure, no. you don't have to. And unless they ask you, they will, we'll get there. So we're going to get to all the things. If you said I committed such and such crime, but you can seal certain records after certain times of you know criminal offenses. Yeah, way. but again, so the question is: Good Is change. he proper for the job? But if, if you there was a what happened? It all depends if it impacts your job at all. What? It all depends if it impacts your job. Well, listen, do you want a rabbi who is arrested for tax evasion? Some people say they only want a rabbi who is arrested for tax evasion. 
So okay, so we're gonna get to all these things. So let's yeah. start. We're gonna start first with evidentiary Wait. procedure. Yeah. Okay, so um, so number one on the sheet here, if you all the if you on the page one. Um, the first thing is like this. So the first thing is in the Torah itself, in the Bible, in um, Deuteronomy, it says very clearly the evidentiary standard for um, in Jewish law is very strict. We have a very high standard. David, you don't have to share with me then. What? I don't want you to get too close. To oh, okay. It's coming no, back. David, David. I have one. I'll take the signed copy after. Everyone's good? You're good? Yeah. So in Deuteronomy, it says like this very clearly. It says, I'll read it in the Hebrew and translate. Based on two or three witnesses. This is talking about a case of capital punishment. So in Jewish law, and as we'll see, this is applicable not just to capital crimes, even though the Torah is stating it here, but it is stated in other places relevant to all monetary matters, we, we say are equal to capital crimes in that sense. Um, no, anything less than one witness is never accepted in a Jewish court of law. Okay, so it's a very high evidentiary standard, higher than obviously we have in American law, um, which is, no, so no, um, nothing, meaning one witness is never accepted. If someone comes along and testifies, you need to have two witnesses who saw the crime, and actually they have to have been standing together. And more so, um, it doesn't say that here, the, the, the defendant had to have been warned by the witnesses that what he's doing, in this case, a cat, is a capital crime. If he wasn't warned, and there was no two witnesses, uh, off talk, that means even, yeah, that was for the executor, murderer. Yes, I said the verse is stating in a case of capital punishment, but it's applied to monetary law too and sexual crimes, which is equal, by the way. Rape in the Torah is equal to murder. The Torah calls. Yeah, but there's usually not a witness. What? There's usually not a witness. Right. Well, rape can the victim be a witness? Yeah, but that's one. We'll get there. That's a different question. First, first, setting up the stand, the evidential stand. Okay, now you're getting getting a PC. What does it say? Okay. <laughs> um, so, the, so the question is, so again, first let me set up the evidentiary standards, then we'll get to all the details. So, so the classical evidentiary standards in the Torah is very strict, very high bar, which is you need to have two witnesses, anything less than that. And like we're saying, if not, if the person wasn't warned, the defendant wasn't warned that what he's doing is a capital crime, and whatever the case is, whatever the punishment is for that crime, prior to him committing the crime, yet to have been warned. It means you see someone chasing someone with a gun down the street, you have to, the two witnesses have to scream out, you know, if you kill this person, you're gonna you get the death penalty. For what are you gonna do? And, and if he didn't acknowledge that, then he cannot be prosecuted in the Jewish court of law. Was that you? What? Okay. America law, that you were warned that and you still did it, you'd be you'd get off on insanity. Is it a warning for that particular crime, or did it have to be, yes. hey, I was no. in Jewish school, they told me these no, no. rules? No, no, it has to be. For what are you going to do now? He has to know. By the way, it's interesting. If it says if it's a scholar, I meaning a Jewish scholar who's, who's going to kill someone, he doesn't have to be warned because the okay. assumption is he knows the fate, he knows, he knows what's going to happen. So if it's a rabbi killing someone, then you don't have to warn him. Okay, it's good to know. Um, so, so the bottom line is it's very high evidentiary standard. It's very hard to prosecute based on that. Um, another thing is circumstantial evidence is never accepted in Jewish court of law. So, for example, you know the classical movie case where you have 
someone's chasing someone down the street with, you know, with a gun, and then, uh, you know, two, uh, two witnesses see it, and they scream to the guy, you know, don't kill him or else you're going to get the death penalty, and then, you know, a panel truck goes by, and then they hear the gunshots behind the panel truck, and they see the guy on the floor, the gun smoking, he's holding, the guy's holding it still in his hand, that's, that's circumstantial evidence. We did, they didn't see, the witnesses can't testify that they saw him killing. They testified they saw him holding a gun, and they saw the guy on the floor after the truck drove by, but they can't testify that they saw him committing an act of murder. So that, again, would not be accepted in the Jewish court of law. I have a question. Yeah. Now, in, in this country, a Jewish guy who should know the, you know, the Ten Commandments, uh, you know, do not That's murder. Well, there's also a law in this country, do not murder. Uh, if they see him uh, shoot the person, two guys, and they haven't warned him, they can't uh, They can't testify, or it's not good? Well, we're told that they can testify, but it's not meaning they can't, we can't uh, kill the guy. I mean, there's no capital punishment in that case. That's what we're saying. But was, there a, was there a prison system, though? That was so the, the rabbis had their ways of taking care of people. If they had in that situation, they'd give them the barley treatment. Yeah, yeah there, is, OJ, there is ways. Where they know for, they know for got, sure. It's the same thing in the U.S. law. We had a deal in our old warehouse where one of the employees had hollowed out a spot in tilt wall, was sticking garments through, putting them outside, and then coming at night and getting them. So we hired a private detective. He's there where the guy does it. He pulls a gun on him, makes him halt, calls the police. Police arrest the guy. District attorney says, you cannot prove, if you don't have evidence of putting it out, you cannot, you cannot prosecute. He stopped him and, he, put it and he, he, he wasn't stealing because he was going for a walk in the warehouse at night and picked him up. You can't prove that he was stealing them. So now do we fire the guy, he filed for unemployment, which we had to fight. <laughs> and we, we did win the unemployment eventually. But you could not prosecute, the DA wouldn't take the case. It's pretty entrepreneurial, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, you get back unless, to you could, unless you have complete visual evidence and see, it, see the whole thing. Okay, so, good. so okay, but that's, but circumstantial well, evidence is accepted in, a, in, a, in American law. What about video right. evidence, if there are no witnesses, but you had a video recording of the guy so that's shooting? That's a question, that's a more amount of thing, which is a question of DNA evidence is accepted mostly bad. today um, well, for many cases, uh, not for paternity, but for murder. Uh, DNA evidence will be accepted. But uh, video, the problem is you can do Photoshop, you can change. Well, you can also have an expert uh, yeah, check okay. for so it's it has expert, been uh, expert witnesses, what especially because they're being paid. It's what about the, the kind of revenge, but you know, if someone kills your brother, you can kill them, right? That's that's a premise. That's a touchy topic. We're not going there. If someone kills your brother, you can kill that person. No witnesses. One thing, not so simple. David, that's a touchy subject in this place, but we're not going to go there. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. Oh, I didn't mean it in your personal. Someone no, kills your saying, father, you can go get him revenge. Yeah, I don't want to say that. Your father, he has a lot to say on this. I just didn't know the standard for the witnesses and the warning was the same as for that. No, that's a different story. That's not relevant today, but different story. We'll talk personally about over lunch and Dino. Okay, so now, again, circumstantial evidence never accepted. So it's a very high evidentiary standard, and it's discussed in the Shokhanach. Shokhanach says, um, number two here, the Shulchan the Jewish Court of Law, uh, quotes um, rules like this. It says, one witness cannot give testimony except for monetary questions where they can obligate the plaintiff to swear. So meaning the testimony of one witness could be used in a tort case, but only to force the person to take an oath. Being an oath in Jewish law is very serious. It's not, as you mentioned, someone mentioned one of the Ten Commandments. Someone just mentioned that. So taking an oath, the one witness can force 
in a tort case can force the defendant to take an oath. That's the most he can do. But again, we don't accept his testimony as truth. It only forces the defendant that he has to now swear, um, which is again a very serious thing. It's a violation if he lies under, under oath. One of the it's a violation of the Ten Commandments. So that's why it's serious. But that's all he can do. He says. Or if there's a question of forbidden deed, there's a possibility of stopping the action from taking place. That means we'll also allow the testimony of one witness because if something is continuously happening and we can prevent further damage, person is, is whatever the case is, that right? it takes a case of a adultery, whatever the case may be, where we want to prevent it from happening further, so then in that case we also um, will take the information of one witness. Let's say it's a question of child molestation or something like that. So one is one witness. So we, then we will allow the person to testify only because we can prevent further damage. Well, once the act already occurred, that's what he says, the code of Jewish law says, however, if it has already occurred, it's forbidden to give testimony about it. Because at this point, this is a very interesting thing, as we'll see from the next quote from the Talmud, is if you're saying the ev your evidentiary standard is two witnesses, you're not eating? On strike. Okay. Um, the the uh, the the point is if you if you're saying evidentiary stand is two witnesses. So now if one person if we take his testimony if we allow him to testify in public. So now it's really there's no point because it's just rumor now. He's creating what we call a motzi shemra, which means he's giving the bad reputation to the defendant, and we, meaning which, which is purposeless because legally we cannot accept his testimony, which is in a certain sense some people might claim what happened in the Kavanaugh case. You have one witness comes forth and testifies. Um, this woman testifies. Now, all if we can't accept her testimony as evidence, right? Because there's no in this case there was no corroboration or there's no one else who's substantiating it. So then the problem is all you're doing is ruining the defendant's name, and you're and you're and in some case you might not appoint him. But we'll get to that part. So all you're starting is a bad rumor, because it, it, since it's not going to be accepted in a court of law. So then all you're doing is starting a rumor, and therefore we don't allow you to do that. Again, if there's a purpose in your testimony, either it will be accepted as evidence, or we can't accept it, or we want to stop something from further occurring, so then it will be allowed. But otherwise, all you're doing is you're giving now voice to someone to, to ruin this defendant's reputation. Okay? Can you use circumstantial evidence to attack the credibility of the witness? For example, in Kavanaugh, the circumstantial evidence was against her. Could that be used? I know you can't convict uh, someone. It's questionable. Don't say that as fact. Let's uh -huh. assume. Well, yeah, okay. No, uh, all, the circum yeah, all, all the circumstances. Like the, like the people yeah. who were alleged to be there said they don't remember, that type of stuff. Okay, so so that's a good question. Meaning, can you his question? Can you use circumstantial evidence to invalidate a witness? Yes. That could be because there's a lot long list. We also have very high standards of a witness in Jewish law, which means someone is a chronic gambler. They're invalidated. If someone uh, a lot of a lot of uh, things that will invalidate as a witness. Someone has a past felony. Any anything that they do, almost anything, very high standard of of being a kosher Thank witness. Thank you very much. So therefore. Um, it could be in those cases you don't need two witnesses to testify that the witness is invalid. Thank you, David. That might work where there's question, meaning where there's evidence that he was a chronic gambler or something like that. That might be sufficient. So that is a good point. Okay, so now I just want to show you, so just to show you how far we take this. So there's a fascinating um, Talmud here. And again, we're going to go back. We'll see that, as we said, now we're just discussing the evidentiary standard. There are different questions of appointments. That's a different question of how we review rumors um, where, where it doesn't fit the evidentiary standard. So number three here is a fascinating story in the Talmud. The Talmud says like this. Wow, this is awesome stuff. 
The Talmud says the only one, blessed be he, is referring to God, Hashem. He loves three people. One who does not get angry. One who doesn't get drunk. He doesn't let people get drunk. Okay, which could be relevant to Kavanaugh. One who is forgiving. Okay? Now, then it goes on to say, the only one, blessed be he, hates, hates three people. Those are the people he loves. What, who does he hate? One who says one statement with his mouth and means another in his heart. Meaning a hypocrite, someone who talks one way out of his mouth. Number two, one who knows testimony about another person and does not testify on his behalf. That means if you can come to a court of law and you are privy to information that can be used as testimony in a court of law and you don't show up um, to testify, to help the defendant or not help the, either way, either to, against the defendant or not, either way it works, then that's also, it says God doesn't like, that's not a good thing. You need to, if you're privy to information that can help prosecute someone, you've got to show up in a court of law. Okay, that's why you gotta go to the jury duty. That's different. Okay, and one number three is he says um, one, number two, one who observes a licentious matter performed by another person and testifies against him alone. That means if I see someone committing uh, whatever the case is, adultery or some type of sexual offense, usually that's what licentious matter means. But I, I saw it like like someone mentioned before. It's very hard to see these things with two people. So I happened to know I was the only guy in the room, or the only woman in the room. So then. He says, don't go testify because, again, his testimony is meaningless and he is the only witness. Consequently, he merely gives the individual a bad reputation, as we said. So we're saying, in that case, your testimony, in a certain sense, is worthless because all you're going to do is give the guy a black eye, but we can't really prosecute him. So then what's the point? Um, you have no right to give the person a black eye, but we'll, don't get nervous yet. We're gonna, it might change soon. So now, and the, and the Talmud brings a story here. It says, like the story of Tuvia, who sinned, some type of sexual sin, the assumption is, and Zingud, some other guy, came to Rabbi Papa to testify against him. So it says Rabbi Papa excommunicated Zingud. He, he, he kicked him out of the court and he excommunicated him. So Zingud claimed, two of you sinned, and Zingud, why should I get punished? I'm the good guy. I'm coming to testify about this, this sexual assault. Rabbi Papa answered, the Torah states, one witness should not testify. So all you're doing is giving him a bad reputation. So therefore, the Talmud is implying, don't testify. If there's no corroboration to your testimony, then you're just messing the person up. Don't go to court. Because in, again, because it's not, if your testimony will, be, will not be accepted in the court of law, then you're just giving the person a bad reputation, and we don't, we don't want that. Now, so there's two, as we're going to see, it's not so simple. Number one is, um, and number four I quote here, that there's uh, early authorities already discussed and actually this was very relevant before the founding of the State of Israel. There's a lot of discussion and whole books, halachic uh, books written on this um, by the original chief rabbis, Rabbi Cook, and by Rabbi Herzog, who was uh, the chief rabbi before the state, uh, when the state was founded, Rabbi Herzog, wrote a three-volume um, book just on this issue, which is they were discussing when the State of Israel was founded, how are they going to keep the Torah's evidentiary standards? Because obviously this is a very high standard, which... Um, which is almost impossible to, you can never prosecute someone based on the standard. So obviously you can't have a society, and this is again, I quote here from early authorities, someone in the, already in the 1320s, early halachic authorities discussed this, that it's un, it was understood that the Torah's evidentiary standards cannot, you, if you uphold them to the letter of the law, you're never going to be able to prosecute someone. You're almost never going to have, surely not capital punishment, but in many cases you, you're almost really going to be, and you can't have a society like that because it will be total anarchy in society. If you have a society where no one gets punished, right, so obviously it will be, there will be anarchy and we can't, we can't have a society like that. Therefore they understood that the Torah standard is for purely for the concept of justice. When we're dealing with 
And when the Torah tells you these evidentiary standards, it's talking about this is what justice is. You can only punish someone with this standard. But it's understood that each judge has to look at each case individually that comes before him and each society, what's going on at that time. And if he feels the need to prosecute, so let's say like in an OJ type case, where we know he did it, but clearly he didn't meet the evidentiary standards. I don't want to mean to pick on OJ, but uh, that's just a case that I know about. And we all know that. So, so the point is, in that case, the judge would have the discretion, even though the evidentiary standards might not be there, but if it's clear to us that he did it based on other factors, so we have, the judge has a right to sort of bend the rules and prosecute the person in whatever way he, f he, feels, he feels the need in that case. Yeah. But not for death penalty case. Um, he can still even, technically even kill death. him indirectly. No, we got to. Well, yeah, the, the Talmud does. He's, yeah, so he's bringing Right. So the Talmud, by the way, does bring such a case, and that's what Gary's referring to, which I think we mentioned in the past. Is that halacha subsequent to the law? That's when they were threatened. Look in the framework of halacha. We're, the halacha is recognizing that we can't. If you set the bar so high right. with evidentiary standards, <laughs> society is not going to be. You're not, you're not going to have a functioning uh, justice system. So therefore, the, the judge is given discretion to sort of use his own in that circumstance and figure out what needs to be done in that case. He can provide judgment, or he said you can. He can try the case. He can no, you can always try the case. We're talking about yeah. even if. The evidentiary stand didn't meet the, this level, this high standard. He has the right to prosecute based on what he deems fit. Um, is needed in that, yeah, needed in that case. What was done in former days where uh, somebody, you know, let's say killed somebody, but uh, a lot of the circumstantial evidence. Right. Okay, so that's what getting. So Gary, so right, the Talmud so mentions a fascinating thing. Okay. And this is what I was telling before. You don't mess with rabbis. You got to be careful. So it says in the Talmud like this: it says that there was cases where where uh, someone, where they knew they had to get this person off the streets. Right. He was a danger to society, but the evidentiary standard did not exist. Right. So what they did was, listen to this, very important, um, which is that, so they take the guy, says they lock him up in a room, and, uh, you know, not feed him for a few days. And then, when he was starving, they'd, uh, they'd have a male slut, they'd stick some uh, barley in the room, um, raw barley, and the guy was, hadn't eaten for two, three days, so he, shoves the barley, you know, he starts eating, he's starving, he eats the barley, and then they'd give him uh, water to drink. And barley, if you ever cooked it, it expands. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if someone hasn't eaten and your stomach is constricted, right. your doctor can help us out with this. So, <laughs> is a kind of doctor? Not a good one. He's only a good doctor. So, uh, so basically, the Talmud says, basically the person would, he would eat the barley, he would eat the barley and, uh, and his stomach would explode, so to speak. Yeah, and wow. basically, they're they're so, so, so you got to be careful with rabbis. So we have our ways of dealing with people, even when, again, there's no evidence. So why didn't they teach the Saudis how to do that? <laughs> okay. Wait, but that was it, that's still murder. It doesn't matter. No, so it's, it's called a grub. Listen, he ate it poison. The judge didn't do it. He did. He ate the food up on his yeah, own free will. Yeah, it's, it's causation. Maybe you want to say it's, but it's not murder. Meaning, this guy he didn't have to eat the barley. No one's telling him to eat it. Slowly, only a little barley and, and drank a little bit of water. <laughs> when you're starving, you don't want to kill him. So you can't kill him. It's a very important point. You can't go out right and kill him because he. Can you confess? And if you confess, you no. Oh, it's another thing. I mentioned that confession is not accepted in Jewish court of law at all. And the reason, and we see that today, if you ever watch, of course, if you watch enough CR, CIS, CSIs, CSIs, or whatever else you're watching, you'll know that most, in, in serial murders especially, they say there's, when, when there's a big case going around, 
They have the FBI has 15 people calling in a day admitting to the to the murder. People want fame, you know. You, wow. They say people on death row. They get a lot of uh, women want to marry them. So people want fame. People like uh, fame. It's a stand. So a confession is not accepted in a, in a Jewish court of law. You have to. Yeah. Depends what the case is. Actually, it's interesting. For sexual matters, um, the Talmud says, you, is the, I'm using the Talmud's language, not my own, it says you don't have to see it like a key in a keyhole. You don't have to see the act as a key in a keyhole. It's enough that uh, you know you see them in a lover's embrace. That's sufficient to understand that something went on. Let's say a case of adultery, whatever the case may be. So you don't have to actually see it says, as a key in a keyhole. It's sufficient to see them in a lover's embrace. But let's say you just see them checking into motel sex, that's not sufficient. Um, so, meaning you'd have to, I mean, it could be it was the person's accountant, right? Uh, it could be, you know, it's not a proof that something happened necessarily. It's because you saw them checking into a hotel together. So, so you need to know, you need to have seen something happen, okay? Then can you be arrested for being a peeping Tom? Mm -hmm. No, you don't that's have to question. see that part. Right, you're saying you don't have to see. Right, no key in the key. Okay, so now, so that's as far as, so again, what we're saying here, number four on top of the pages from the Ran is that um, the Ran is Rabbeinu Nisim. Again, this is uh, 1300s. The Rajba, who was another person who lived at the same time, writes very similarly. He says that if we would leave it up to the Torah's evidentiary standards, he says the world would be destroyed because it would be chaos. We, wouldn't, we have to have a functioning society, and therefore the halachic system understood that. So clearly this, there's two, so to speak, two tracks. There's, a, there's strict justice, and then there's every judge has to rule and, and understand what's relevant for his time and place. Okay, so that's, that's number four. Now the question becomes now, so what about, um, so as we're saying, so that's when it comes to evidentiary standard. So very, we're very strict, but we could bend the rules. Okay, now here we have a different question. As we said, when you're talking about Kavanaugh case or a rabbi going for an interview or, or, or any time today, I mean, unfortunately, in, in many professions, you have this, you have the CEO, you have whatever it is, in, in, um, you know, even teachers, unfortunately, today, you got to be careful who's teaching your kids today. So, so the question becomes what, you know, I hear just a rumor about it or we're doing a process, an interview process, and someone comes along and says, by the way, someone sends me an email 30 years ago, you're putting this on Facebook. <coughs> Can be on your Facebook page. No, I just like that. Like oh, okay. Oh, no. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, so, what is it? So paparazzi. So the bottom line is, um, oh, so the question becomes: So what am I obligated? It's just a rumor. Someone comes along and sends me an email. It could be anonymous. It could be they come in and talk to me. It says thirty years ago, the guy you're interviewing to be the rabbi of the synagogue. You know, uh, he, he did some inappropriate things with me. Okay, so does that mean that automatically I have to stop the process? How do I know this person's not lying? How do I know it's not just, uh, you know, there's really no, as we say, clearly there's no evidence to it. Is that enough of a reason that we need to not hire this guy? Listen, a rabbi's important job. It's almost as important as Supreme Court. Some might say more important. You, 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 uh, you know, people put this trust in this person. So what, at which point do we say, okay, there's rumors about the guy? How does that work, okay? So number one is, so rumors, halakhically, in, in Jewish law, are never accepted. There is a concept, um, now, no, it's meaning that, first of all, as we know, we've discussed here many times, there's a concept called Lashonara, that you're not allowed to even accept something. If someone tells you something, <coughs> if another guy comes along and says something negative about someone else, you're not allowed to accept that, okay? Um, 
you, you, it's biblical well, prohibited. Trust the person that's telling you that. It's our lush and heart. Like, right, right, yeah. Watch out. You can defend against it. You just can't accept ah, it. So that's we're going to talk about. So now, so now there is a concept. We'll get to your point in a second. I mean, there's something. There is a concept where some people have more trust than others. You know, this guy. Let's say it's another rabbi coming to town, maybe. <laughs> bad okay, uh, um, now whatever the case is, me uh, meaning be. also, by the way, we'll talk about that also, the victim might have more belief than someone else. It's a victim of a sexual attack. If a woman's coming along and she's saying, she's saying I was attacked by this guy, that also might give it more credence. So we'll, we'll get to that in a second. So it's a good point Clive is making. But let me just read the first statement there. So the Aruch HaShulchan, it's number five on the sheet. It says like this, it says, when there's a rumor going out in the city, we only pay heed to it if the rumor has become uh, established in the Jewish court through proper witnesses who testify that they saw the preparations for the wedding. So here, in this particular situation, we're talking about people are saying this woman now uh, got engaged to someone, and they're saying, by the way, she was previously married. She never got divorced from the guy in a different city. She was she had a previous marriage, and she doesn't have a gift. She doesn't have. Uh, she was married, and she therefore it's an that means if she marries the second guy, it's adultery in Jewish law because she was previously married. Okay, so, so someone comes and says, starts a rumor and says, comes to the rabbi and says, oh, the wedding you have this Sunday that you're officiating at, the woman is actually married and, uh, and she never got a divorce. So what is he supposed to do? So says the Shulchan Aruch here, the Aruch Shulchan, says if there's a rumor going about the city, we only pay heed to it if this rumor has become established in Jewish court through proper witnesses who testify that they saw the preparations for the wedding and there has been a rumor, and there has been a rumor that she's ma that married the woman. wedding or the second, second wedding? Either one. Well, that's the question here. Okay. He's saying it's a second wedding. The person coming. Oh, okay. and, we're, and she's saying no. It's my first marriage. And then, then um, we then assume that she's indeed a married woman. So he's saying if there was rumors, and a guy comes forth, and we we make an investigation to testify, there's a court saying that we checked it out, and she was previously married. The two pieces of information together can establish halachic reality. But anything less than that, just because there's rumors going around saying this person was married before, that's not accepted. You don't have me as a rabbi, I'm a fishing at the wedding. Someone says, by the way, this person was married before. I don't have to check it out. I mean, there's no, just because one guy shows up and tells me a rumor, that's nothing. Okay, that's not accepted. Yes. Um, one is adultery, a capital offense. Yes. Is attempted adultery, except they vet this no. out and she was married and they don't have the wedding. No harm, no foul. It never happened. If she gets right. married, then they execute him. Ooh, well, the second, the second marriage. You get oh, married. well, he did not. I mean, he had, he's, if he knows she was married before and he married her, then that would be... I mean, again, today, you only... Yeah, I'm saying we don't execute people today, except in Texas. But I'm saying we don't... Rabbis don't execute people. But, uh, um, but I'm saying is, technically speaking, if he, again, if he was warned, there was, yeah, then, and he knew that what he was getting into. But if he didn't know it, he did it unintentionally. He didn't know she was previously married. It was just a rumor. But she committed adultery then. If she knew she was married, yes. And then they drag her off his new wife that was married with her. They drag her off and hang her. Yeah, right? if, there's, if there's two witnesses, they don't hang her. Right? But Sorry. It's two Sorry. Now, the two-witness requirement on, say, like a serial rapist, if H witness and where there's dozens of women but only each woman can testify uh, towards each attack can you combine them or like, like a bill cosby there's scores of women but maybe like uh, only one so each one was isolated so assuming can you combine the witnesses or you say look no, the there's only that have seen normally so, so under jewish law he would, he would get off. standard two witnesses have to have seen Crossing it together yeah. now we'll get to the different <laughs> thing when you have <laughs> saying this when it gets to the point of rumor that's what we're discussing now when you have Probably enough some. People coming yeah, forward, right, clearly yeah. something can't, more. They, they can't all be lying, yeah, but there's yeah. only. But what if there's only one no, woman? No, so again, for each he might not be able to. to depending, the question is again, if he's a danger to society, that's what we've said before. We have to keep him off the streets. We might be able to lock him up. 
based on that. So that's what's that's interesting about him, Bill Cosby. Now he's like a, he's an old decrepit man. He's no longer a danger. His damage is done. Jewish law. Um, not really. <coughs> Listen, we're gonna we're gonna weigh the fact someone takes thirty years to come no, forward. We're gonna weigh that fact. Technically speaking, there's no statute. Not about punishment, doesn't? For sure, it's no, it's not about punishment. It's about a danger to society versus punishment. It's is not. It's it is not a punishment it's system. Unconvictable. It's not a, our system is not based on punishment. He was convicted. Yeah. He was, where? What so you what they he do was convicted. They just lock him up and give him Marley. <laughs> there needs to be a consequence for crime. Right, this guy. That'd be good. The guy in Arizona, that uh, the, the warden in Arizona, that'd be the sheriff. Oh, hey, Rappo. Rappo, we serve barley as a regular meal for lunch. Three square, yeah. Three square. Okay, so. You want to be a prince. So again, what what the. Guys, guys, so continue. <laughs> so the Arach is saying very clearly, he's ruling that we rumor without Allah does not create Allah reality. Okay, so just a rumor alone, unless it's vetted in a court of law, we can't create a reality based on that. So again, if someone, based on what he's saying, it would sound like we don't, you know, just someone's coming along in the process. So let's say, I'm, like I say, I'm fishing at a wedding on Sunday, and someone says this person was previously married. That's not sufficient reason for me to call off the wedding. Um, I have no right to do that. Um, the same thing I would say, let's say there's a rabbinical, uh, there's a process we're hiring a rabbi in the synagogue and so, you know, someone shows up and says, you know, 30 years ago he did this. That necessarily would not be a reason to stop the process. But, um, the Chafetz Chaim, and this is what you're discussing, the laws of Lashon Hara, although we say that it's prohibited to accept negative speech, if someone's talking negatively about someone else, but it's very important to understand there's something called, and it's prohibited, by the way, for the people, for the person saying it, making the statement, the negative statement, and it's also prohibited for the person listening, hearing the statement. Okay, there's two, pro both sides prohibited. But if what's the, what's called the toilet, and this is what we discussed in the past, and I'm sure you've studied it, whoever you're studying with, Rejagman, so then you, in that, there's something called toilet. That means if there's a, how many translate toilet? There's a purpose in me telling Lashnar to prevent further damage. This guy's going to business partnership, or he's, Coming the rabbi in the shul, and we want we need to know that he's not safe to be alone in a, in a room with a woman. Okay, so in that case, I'm obligated to tell the lashnara. It's not lashnara. Lashnara means I'm just saying it for gossip purposes. I'm talking at the water cooler. If by me coming forth and stating this um, and doing that in order to prevent further damage from occurring, then I'm obligated to do that. So let's say I've. Uh, sure. Mrs. What's the name? No what's her name? Constructive what's purpose. Remember her name? What's the name of the woman who testified? Christine Blakely Ford. Christine Blakely Ford. So, yeah. what she did initially to go call up Diane Feinstein's office and send the evidence, technically, she did the right thing. If she, assuming she, let's assume she, we trust her at this point. So, assuming she had a right to do that, because even though it's saying it's not evidentiary standards, but she wants to prevent a bad thing from happening in the future. So she has a right to go and reveal that information privately, um, not publicly, which she didn't. And she said she doesn't want to get out public. She has every right to tell her senator, listen, this guy's an evil guy. We, need, we can't allow this to go forward. As far as the laws of Lush and Hara are concerned. Now, the question becomes, what do we do? What does Dan Franklin do? What does the, the committee do when they hear this information? So again, because it's not evidentiary standard, of course they cannot accept it as truth. We said that's clear. But, says the Chavetz Chaim, and that's what I put down here, based on rumors, one has a right to suspect 
I have a right, if someone tells me something negative about someone who's going to be appointed as a rabbi, Supreme Court Justice, to now to go and investigate that. I can't accept it as truth. I have a right to go now and figure it out. Is there some truth to this? That's our job as a Betin, or in this case a committee, or the FBI, whoever's job it is, to go and investigate that. In, in Judaism, it would be the Jewish Court of Law, a Betin. You'd have to convene a Betin, and they would have to figure out and ascertain is there truth to this rumor? Okay? Now, again, they would have to take into account all the facts. It's 30 years later, I come no one else. What is, this, what is the corroborating evidence? Um, does this person, is this person an enemy? Um, is there a reason is, 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 if she's a left-wing, very left-wing, and she doesn't want a conservative person on the, on the court? All that would be taken into account in the process. Okay, all that should be and has to be taken into account. Again, because you, there's no evidence. You haven't reached an evidentiary standard in the Jewish court of law in, in this case, um, or in, in, in Kavanaugh's case, maybe in any, in even in, in an American court of law. But that doesn't mean we don't have to investigate. Our obligation... As, as a committee or a betin or, or let's say it's, it's a shul or hiring a rabbi, they would have to go and investigate that. There's enough, if you have something negative that's serious enough that this person shouldn't be appointed in that position, so then of course you have to go ahead, you're allowed to, again, not accept this truth, but the rumor is enough that you could be what we call choshish for it. I have to be concerned about it, and therefore I need to go ahead and investigate. Um, um, and then ascertain, which basically, in a certain sense, I think what happened in the Kavanaugh hearings was the right thing. She did the right thing. Um, the FBI then ended up investigating it, which, if you want to say, okay, they're not a bad thing, but the FBI, assuming they did a, a full investigation, which that's debatable also, but let's assume that they were, had, they were privy to all the information and they did a full investigation, and they ascertained that we, there's, there's not enough evidence to, to not appoint him based on that, so then technically the right process one could argue was done according to what we're saying, according yeah. to the Chafetz Chaim, meaning, meaning they, they suspect there was rumors, again, no evidence, but rumors. There was um, um, enough rumors for them to be concerned about it, and they convened an investigation. Now, what level of an enemy? Like 40 years ago, oh, politics would never be enough for someone to lie. Now, you have people giving death threats over political uh, issues. Right. So obviously, you know. You're right. That's a good well, point. Well, and death threat is like this now. You have a letter. <laughs> <laughs> piece together a magazine. Right. So by the way, that, that is a very important thing, David, that you bring up because in those days when we're talking about rumors, even not so long ago, 30 years ago, so when they discuss what what how do, what do you even consider a rumor? One person coming forth is that a rumor? Not really. I'm doing. A, I'm hiring someone for the. For, for the rabbi position. One person comes along and says 30 years, is that even a rumor? How do you define rumor? So in those days, even define it, they said it has to be something going around for at least three days straight and um, everyone's talking about it and it's not ceasing, meaning the rumor's not ceasing. Now today, that's not a little well, it's not, meaning it's not stopping, the rumor's not going away. Okay, meaning so it's good, it's juicy, it's in the media. Right, so now, but what's interesting is today we have WhatsApp, we have Facebook, it, it's the the level of something spreading so quickly is you know what what then took you know three weeks to spread today you can do in five seconds if you have you know I have three thousand Facebook friends I post something that's it it's a rumor I don't know any of them I only know like five of them but, uh, but the point is right so 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 it's easy to to very today spreading a rumor or even starting a rumor is so much easier because you you know you put something on WhatsApp the whole it goes around the world and what then took, you know, could take months to get to the other side of the ocean. Today happens in three seconds. So it's it's a it's interesting, and I don't know I don't know the answer to that. Meaning, 
the level of what's considered rumor today, the, our standards have, you know, have gotten much lower and much easier to start rumors. Because all you do is post it on Facebook. It could be totally fake news or whatever it is, and everyone's talking about it. So, so how do you, you know, how do you define a rumor today? So it's a good question. I don't know. I'm not sure. You know, clearly times have changed. But like you say, first of all, the fact that someone is an enemy, that obviously will call their spreading of a rumor into question. So if someone is on the other side, and there's a reason, you know, they don't want this person either to be the rabbi or the Supreme Court justice. That clearly is a reason that we have to be careful with it and take what they're saying with a grain of salt. So you need to know that. That's part of, again, because we're not dealing with evidentiary standards, we're dealing with investigating rumors. So once it's at that level, so everything is taken into account. Um, like we're saying, you know, does the person want the movie rights to the story? Does he want the book rights? Today there's so many other factors involved when people accuse people of something. Um, you know, this guy Avenatti, clearly he you know, wants to make a movie about his life. You know, or someone else's life. So, so then, so, so, how do you view the person? Any, anytime a lawyer comes forth with something, you have to be suspect, of course. And, uh, be careful, <laughs> right? Not accountants um, or doctors. Okay, so, so, rabbis, uh, okay, so. The, by the way, it's another thing. Which, by the way, as a rabbi, you get this a lot of times, and especially in cases of divorce, you'll always have one side accusing the other side of some <coughs> disgusting thing. You know, this. You know. Uh, they molested my two-month-old. You know, there's what you get when you're dealing with divorces. It gets really nasty, and obviously, you know, the, we're not dealing with. I don't think in that case rumors even apply because people just say anything, you know, just as leverage in a divorce. In, in many divorce cases, so in cases like that, again, it has to be taken into account. Someone say, you know, my husband molested my two-month-old. You know, I, I usually don't take that. <laughs> usually don't accept that as even a rumor. Probably doesn't have to be investigated. Never know these days, but um, <laughs> but I'm just saying in divorce, so all that is taken into account. Um, um, okay, so that's number one. Now, uh, and, uh, and the last thing I quoted is a few other issues. Let me just see. Let's skip on them. Skip this last thing, which is interestingly enough, um, it talks about uh, the chazan in the shul. This is important actually, because uh, in in traditional Judaism, the person who leads prayer service, especially on the high holidays, there's uh, a level, it shouldn't just be any guy just because he has a good voice. The guy has to be someone who you want, technically the leader, the prayer leader, someone who represents the congregation. So the Shulchan Aruch discusses, let's say this guy comes along and says, this guy is going to lead the service, he's, uh, he you know, attacked me, or he did, did this, or whatever the case is. So, so that's something that has to be taken into account. So they discuss if someone from the congregation, how it works, that's where a lot of this is discussed in that context. Um, well, actually, there was a case, and I have there's a response that I read. Um, this took place around 20 years ago. It was written about a rabbi who was interviewing someplace. He came to ask the rabbi. The case that I told you about, he, he was being interviewed as a rabbi, and he came to ask the question is that he did, he sat in jail 20 years ago for tax evasion, and his question was, do I have to disclose that in the, in the interview process? Okay? So some synagogues will say, wow, tax evasion, we want the guy for sure. Why not? Um, <laughs> But, uh, but the point is, right, so, so uh, in this case, the rabbi told him, if he, he said he repented, he did repent from, his, from the process, okay, so, so in that case, the rabbi told him, he doesn't have to disclose it, but if they ask you if you committed a felony in the, in the interview, if you ever were in jail, you have to reveal it. But as long as they don't ask you, as, and he repented, the assumption was, repented from that action to this time. He said, I think he was only in jail like six months here in, the, in that case, but he did his time, and he 
feel he truly feels remorse. So then technically he said you don't have to you don't have to reveal it in the process. Um, now and this is important because and that's why I discuss here and pass in these questions because the question is let's say the guy did something and he even admits it, but he does, he did truly repented for his past deeds. Is that a reason that we shouldn't appoint him? Okay, so that's one question. Um, so if you look at what I discussed here, past indiscretions, so the Shulchan Aruch says like this. First of all, the first question is a minor, as I mentioned in the beginning. The question is you have a minor who did something uh, when he was a minor. Again, in Jewish law, a minor is under the age of 13 for male, under the age of 12 for female, so it's a much lower le level, and there's clearly not a level of maturity, with the assumption is under that age, they don't have, they can't make, they don't make rational decisions. Okay, of course, there are many adults who don't make rational decisions either, but the, the assumption is, therefore, they're not held accountable in Jewish law. Actually, by the way, in Jewish law, till the age of 20, we can't press, we don't, we, you're held liable for your actions, but we don't prosecute you, let's say, for capital, um, capital cases, for sure, you can't be prosecuted. Okay, which is an interesting thing. So the question here is, so the Shulchan Aruch actually discusses, the Code of Jewish Law says, a child who has hit his father or has transgressed any other prohibitions when he was a child, although he isn't required to repent when he gets older. So let's say now he's older. There's even the question here is, does he have to repent? He, it would still be praiseworthy for him to take on certain practices to affect a complete forgiveness. So even though technically he wasn't liable when he committed the act, so let's assume in the case of Kavanaugh, I don't know how old he was, in high school when, when he was accused of those accusations, um, so if he was couldn't be held liable because he was in a minor in that case. So again, there is a certain thing that we say, listen, that happened when he was a minor. Therefore, we can't, can't hold him li you know, liable for those actions. So that's another interesting point I wanted to mention. Um, the other part is, again, now if, he, he, by the way, in Kavanaugh's case, he's not admitting he did it. So he clearly can't repent. You know, it's only if he repented. Again, in this case where the rabbi was saying I sat in jail, the case was where he clearly had remorse for what he did. But if you're not admitting to what you did, clearly you can't repent for your actions. So in Kavanaugh's case, he's saying he never did it. Um, he's saying so he drank beer. Jewish law, if he said I did it, but I was a uh, young, uh, not thinking, 16-year-old uh, kid, and, and he had I, really, remorse again. I realized what I did is wrong, and I would never yes. do it again, then that wouldn't be a bar for appointing him to judgeship? What we're saying is if he did it as a minor, and he truly has remorse, and he says I messed up. In, in Jewish law. In Jewish law, yes. Then but, that but in would not be... But guilty for that trust. Well, anything, I mean, that's a different situation. But any time you, you, it's a fact, if someone did something, how can you not hold that against him? It's still, uh, you know, oh, yes, yeah, there's... Because what we're saying I, is when they, were, they did it as a... He was 16 and he said, I, well, yeah, I did was a mistake, I regret it, I'll, and I never did... We'll do it again. One, I ran over three people, that was Man, look at, listen, ago. Beto, that's Beto, he was supposedly left to see him next. He, he admitted to it and he has remorse. He... And a lot for of people sure voted for him. hold him accountable. <laughs> a lot of people voted for him. For right? sure. So, meaning, again, admitting you did something wrong and having remorse, in Jewish law, technically gets off the hook. Now, again, it doesn't mean there's a certain personality. Maybe not. You know, we, we might not, still might not want this guy as the rabbi of the shul. But is that grounds clearly not to remove someone from position that comes out later, uh, depending on what he did and at what stage in life? I believe that's what it would be dependent. Um, but if he did it as a, as a kid, I don't think, again, we say technically speaking, he can't be held liable for his action. Um, um, so, so again, in Kavanaugh's case, he did not repent because he never admitted to any wrongdoing. So therefore, he, he didn't repent. But assuming he did, that would be then that would be according to Jewish law. I would say maybe that's enough enough reason to get him off the hook. Um, now, but how can you unknow a fact about somebody? It's not hey, a fact. I, I know what you hear. Not Kavanaugh. 
but oh, a 17-year-old drunk and drive and didn't commit a crime. Oh, but he was young and did, but we still know this happened. Listen, listen, you understand? I have he, a friend. He admitted it was a mistake and he moved on. Uh, well, that's a valid point. I have a colleague. This is a real right, story. Right. That's yeah. the point. David, I have a colleague who was uh, he was an outreach rabbi in, a, in Seattle, Washington, and twice, but he wasn't a hit and run. He he just hit someone and a biker was twice. Said. Twice he hit the same guy. Twice. Same yeah. guy. No, no. Both times, and yeah. one person was killed. One person was severely injured. He just drove like crazy. You know, he's a crazy man. Still my biker. And uh, and one was a pedestrian, was a biker, and. Basically, they told him, "You have to leave town. You can't. You can't have a rabbi who, who has this reputation. He, you know, he killed two people. He went to court. He went to trial. I mean, he was. He, had, he never was convicted or anything. He didn't do it. You know, I don't, it wasn't intentional. But still, even in that case, they felt like <laughs> to have a guy, a rabbi, who has twice back. It's just so I'm saying. So obviously, you take that into account. And okay. there, they removed him from the position. He's now he moved. To, he made Aliyah. He lives in Israel. He has a. He's a rabbi there. Well, there everyone drives like crazy. So. <laughs> <laughs> you send them a box but you can barley. take it into account. Is my point. Yeah, surely. Unlike somebody who sends them barley. They do. Start saying something. You get your honestness. Some people get nuts from David Samir and get barley this year. Okay, so I want to add in just two two more quick things, and we'll finish. One is number eleven on the bottom, which is indiscretion is done while inebriated. That's another question, relevant. So let's say the guy was drunk. Does that, is that get you off the hook in any which way? So very clearly the Talmud says, with regard to one who's intoxicated, number 11, the last one on the sheet here, is acquisition is a binding acquisition. That is, he cannot retract the transaction when he's sober. Similarly, a sale is a binding sale. Moreover, if he committed a transgression for which he's liable to receive the death penalty when he was drunk, he is executed. In halacha, what we're saying is in Jewish law, inebriation, being intoxicated is not an excuse. It doesn't get you off the hook in any which way. Even if you did something, technically, you say, listen, I was stone drunk, I didn't realize what I was doing at the time. That's in no way an excuse. If the offense is punishable by lashes, he's flogged. The principle is that he's like a sober person in all matters, except that he's exempt from prayer. So the only thing you get off the hook when you're inebriated is you don't have to pray. Otherwise, uh, <laughs> otherwise you're, you're completely held liable for all your actions. Okay, now I just want to end off with this one last thing, which I think is very relevant. Number eight on the top. Um, it says like this. This is my man speaking. He says, he says he's defining what it means to be what we call in Jewish law a Talmud Chacham or a rabbi, someone who's going to be appointed in any position of authority for the for the community, any community position. So he says, even as the wise man, this is very important. I think which define many of our politicians and our judges and rabbis. Even as the wise man is recognized by his wisdom and ideas, says Maimonides, whereby he is distinguished from the rest of the public. So the guy could be the biggest scholar in the world, whether it's in the judicial system, whether whatever it is, um, or as a rabbi. He says, so, so it is necessary for him to be distinguished in his conduct, eating, drinking, sexual relations, elimination, means even how he goes to the bathroom, speech, rendeva, rendeva is, I don't know what that means in this context, dress, temper, temperament, Temperate, it's a mistake, that's a title. Temperament, I think, means in words, and his business relations. All these deeds should be aesthetic and exceedingly cultured. Meaning, meaning when you're looking at a candidate for someone who's going to be in a public position, whether it's Supreme Court position, whether it's a rabbi position, whether whatever the position is going to be, community leader, you need to, it's not just about, okay, listen, he's, the guy has an um, impeccable record in, on the court. He's a brilliant scholar, he knows everything. That's, not, that's important, obviously. Or for a rabbi, it's important that he knows Torah. But but that's not the rabbi. Manly saying that's not what defines him. 
every single action about the person. Um, in America today, we seem to have separation between morality and, listen, he, you know, he's a great president. The fact that he, you know, had seven affairs on the side doesn't affect who he is as a president. So that's, in, in Judaism, that's not true. How a person behaves in every aspect of their life mm -hmm. completes the person. So meaning, and I heard once an explanation, uh, in Maimonides' commentary said like this, he says, isn't that that he's a scholar and, and uh, you know, on the side he happens to be, he's not, he doesn't have such a great temperament. No, if you don't have this temperament in all these areas, then you're not a scholar. The scholar is defined not just by his wisdom, but also by how he acts in all his other life matters, how he treats his wife, how he treats his kids. So it's not about uh, just scholarship. So whatever the position may be, all these factors should be and have to be taken into account. Maimani says, therefore, if someone doesn't have all of the above, he can't be appointed, in this case, he's talking about as a, as a rabbinical position as a community leader. Can um, you go back to as a kid, if you, can you reconcile with the other example you gave with so Beto when he, he was repented, a young kid? No, so that's something else. If he repented for his actions and now he does have all these factors and he fits this, this, this list, then that's fine. We didn't know, we're not going to care what he did 30 years ago. You know, again, if it was a punishable offense, that's something else. But as long as he currently fits this, um, and you have to know that when, in the interview process, Again, for whatever position that is, then then you can hire him. But if he doesn't, he has any. If he's lacking in any of these, and we're saying sexual matters, drink the way he eats, the way he drinks, that's all. Those things are important. Shalom.